This bill is, is simply a proxy for discrimination. Uh, the justifications for it are not supported adequately by a need. This bill is a pretext for bigotry. Uh, this bill is extremely dangerous. It's unnecessary, and I'll be voting against it. Well, you may be voting against it, but you just made a good argument for Republicans to vote in favor. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Because that's what they do. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI and Round Mountains, KKRN. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO and Eugene's KEPW, Lanchester, Pennsylvania's W News, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, we may be talking about Wisconsin today. And Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We're also streamed coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening pleasure and edification and education on the Internet. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and most of your favorite podcast sites, Blanketing Planet Earth. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Desi is already giving me dirty looks as I'm trying to adjust the soundboard. (laughs) Yes, that's my job. (laughs) That is. You do it well. Uh, Anyway, uh, hey, welcome to the Bradcast. Uh, As if uh, this summer's record climate-changed weather could not get any crazier Des. Well, uh, you'll have some uh, some of the latest mad temperatures, for example, up in the Pacific Northwest, which our friends up in Oregon and Washington yes. State are likely already too aware of. As oh, of indeed. Now. Uh, as well as the seemingly endless fires up in Canada that continue to rage and are leading to All new evacuations in a number of towns today. As if all of that was not mad enough. A story that spun up today only after we had finished today's Green News report. (laughs) Torrential rain is expected to hit the U.S. Southwest beginning the U.S. Southwest. Torrential rain (laughs) as uh, beginning as early as Friday. Torrential rain in the Southwest. In August, did yep. anyone have California hurricane on their climate crisis 2023 bingo card this year? I certainly did not. As the New York Times reports, Tropical Storm Hillary became a hurricane early Thursday morning. As forecasters warned, it would continue to rapidly strengthen through the day and could potentially bring, quote, significant impacts to Mexico and 
the southwestern U.S. this weekend. As of Thursday morning, the uh, storm had sustained winds of 85 miles per hour with higher gusts, according to the National Hurricane Center. Hillary, uh, now tropical storm, but maybe soon Hurricane Hillary, formed pretty quickly about 500 miles off the coast of Mexico on Wednesday and was moving toward Baja, California, which is actually Mexico, south of the state, the U.S. state of California. The hurricane was expected to intensify and become a major hurricane of Category 3 or higher Later on Thursday, because of the storm's angle to the coast, it is difficult to pinpoint exact landfall locations. Right now, it's sort of like just going to be heading due north, right up from Baja into California or Arizona, and just keep heading north. Um, It will bring up to six inches of rain with isolated amounts uh, across portions of the Baja Peninsula through Monday morning with the possibility of flash flooding. Stephanie Sullivan, forecaster with the National Weather Service in San Diego, said a worst-case scenario for Southern California would be if the track shifted farther west and made landfall in California, which could produce much stronger winds and larger surf. Now, that would be quite rare. The only tropical cyclone to truly make landfall in Southern California was an unnamed storm way back in 1939. It made landfall in Long Beach, which is, what, about half hour or so south of uh, south of L.A. here. The better scenario for California could be a worse one, however, for Arizona and for Baja, California. If the storm tracks farther to the east into the Baja Peninsula over the next couple of days, the moisture and heavy rainfall would be shifted east toward Arizona. A difference of just 100 miles or so in the track of the storm would mean a large change for the expected weather, say forecasters here at the uh, L.A. National Weather Service office. The eastern Pacific, uh, Pacific hurricane season has been apparently very active over the past few weeks, but most of the recent storms tracked far to the west out toward Hawaii, including Hurricane Dora. That helped uh, enhance the extreme winds that led to the devastating fire, wildfires up uh, on Maui, which, you know, we discussed uh, with our friend Shaggy out there at our affiliate station KAKU. Right, who said it's interesting was... how it's all connected, that this distant Hurricane Dora, which uh, spun up in the Pacific Ocean due to yeah. the warmer waters, actually made it all the way across to Hawaii on a track that it wouldn't normally have taken, which then influenced the the, the intensity of the fires that drove the fires that uh, destroyed Lahaina. Yeah, it, it actually made it as far west uh, as Hawaii, but it didn't actually hit Hawaii. It was right. 500 miles to the south, but yeah. just that, the wind winds, as Shaggy had mentioned on air, were gusting 85 miles per hour and over as they had this uh, dry climate changed brush just ready to burn. And boy, with those kind of winds, that's what happened on Maui. Uh, It is, as the National Weather Service uh, explained, quote, exceedingly rare for a tropical storm to come off the ocean and make landfall in California. However, storms have come close or weakened before coming ashore, still causing flooding and dangerous winds. For example, K, a uh, post-tropical cyclone just last year. Complicating things in the Pacific this year is the development of El Nino 
which increases the chances for storms in the Pacific, unlike in the Atlantic, where El Nino actually has the opposite effect, reducing the chances for storm formation there. Is that how you understand it as well? Yes, it does, except this year it looks like it's going to be maybe a little different because if you recall, we've already reported that yep. uh, the uh, hurricane forecasters at NOAA have actually increased the um uh, forecast for mm -hmm. the Atlantic hurricane season because El Nino is behaving differently this year and the Atlantic is record warm. So the uh, dampening effect of El Nino may be less because the Atlantic is at record hot temperatures, providing lots of fuel for hurricanes to form. Of course, you did have El Nino, uh, a strange malformed El Nino on your climate change 2023 <laughs> bingo card, as I recall. Yeah. Uh, there is, in the meantime, solid consensus among scientists that hurricanes are becoming more powerful because of climate change, with the likelihood of major hurricanes increasing, climate change is also affecting the amount of the amount of rain that storms can produce. In a warming world, the air can hold more moisture, which means a named storm can hold and produce more rainfall. As we all recur, for, uh, 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 remember, of course, from. For example, Hurricane Harvey back in uh, in Texas in 2017, when some areas received more than 40 inches of rain in less than 48 hours. We do not expect that here in Southern California, although things could change quickly. Nonetheless, researchers have uh, also found that storms have slowed down over the past few decades, which also leads to much more rain when a storm slows down over water. It increases the amount of moisture that it can absorb from the ocean, which in turn increases the amount of rain that then falls over a single location when it makes landfall, particularly if it does not move quickly over that land. So that's just a few of the ways that scientists see climate change affecting these storms. Research also shows other impacts as well, including storm surge, rapid intensification, and a broader reach of tropical storms, for example, the one that could make landfall in California. We will see. All of which we have seen and reported on, on uh, via this program and, of course, our Green News report, sadly, more and more frequently in recent years, just in case you haven't noticed. And all of this, coincidentally... On the one-year anniversary of President Biden and the Democrats' landmark Inflation Reduction Act, the somewhat unhelpfully named uh, landmark statute, <laughs> which makes the largest single investment in clean energy manufacturing and climate change mitigation to the tune of about $400 billion, the largest single investment that the world has ever seen. And as Desi will discuss on the uh, one-year anniversary... In the Green News report, it's already resulted in a manufacturing, construction, and jobs boom in the U.S., whether Americans have yet to hear about that or not. So uh, we'll do our part to help you learn about it. With uh, so much else going on and, and such a dreadful mainstream corporate media we have in this country, a lot of people have not heard about it. But don't get me started on that. All right. <laughs> there are a number of... Um, number of issues I want to try to uh, catch up with today after we've been on the Trump indictment beat over the last uh, several shows as his uh, latest indictment is fourth. This one in Georgia brings the total number of criminal felony charges for a disgraced former president to an incredible 91. 
criminal charges in four different jurisdictions, uh, both the state and federal level, uh, all related to his failed attempt to steal the 2020 election, to his theft of thousands of national security documents upon leaving the White House, and his secret hush money payments made to porn stars to help him win the 2016 election. So short of any new indictments being handed down today, you never know. <laughs> some uh, some non-indictment-related items I would love to get to uh, get on the record here this week. Let me start here with the uh, with the party that used to pretend to oppose big government interceding between patients and their doctors. Remember that? That was darling. At least when they were, you know, attempting to prevent millions of Americans from receiving access to health care at all back during the passage of Obamacare some years ago. They were outraged. The government should never come between the patient and their doctor. Well, that was then. Now uh, that party, the Republican one, has been spending recent months trying to do exactly that. Place big government smack dab between doctors and patients on everything from reproductive care to medical care for transgender people, which is just unspeakably cruel, especially as applied to children, as they are now either doing or attempting to do in about 22 states that are controlled by Republicans in some fashion. So we've got some news on on the latest attempt at placing big government inside of your doctor's office between patients and doctors today out of uh, one of the most wildly gerrymandered if otherwise rather evenly divided states, that would, of course, be North Carolina. Transgender youth in North Carolina lost access on Wednesday to gender-affirming medical treatments after the Republican-led General Assembly overrode the Democratic governor's vetoes of that legislation and other bills touching on gender in sports and LGBTQ plus instruction in the classroom. The uh, GOP supermajorities, the autocratic GOP supermajorities in the uh, gerrymandered North Carolina House and Senate, uh, enacted over Governor Roy Cooper's opposition, a bill barring medical professionals from providing hormone therapy, puberty blocking drugs and surger, uh, surgical gender transition procedures to anyone under the age of 18, even where it is found to be both safe and even recommended by the nation's top medical organizations. The Republicans, the elected Republicans, in the North Carolina House and Senate, they know better. The unspeakably cruel GOP law now takes effect immediately in North Carolina. Though minors who had begun treatment before August 1, which is an almost randomly chosen date, well, if you were in before August 1, that's fine. Anyone after that, kind of, nope, not for you. Anyone before August 1, they can continue receiving the care if, if their doctors deem it medically necessary and their parents consent. But if their doctors deem it medically necessary and their parents consent after August 1, sorry, too bad, you're out of luck. You can go to another state if you don't like it. 
Though there's not many to uh, choose, there's fewer and fewer to choose from these days. North Carolina is now the 22nd, 22nd state to enact legislation restricting or banning gender-affirming medical care for transgender minors, but most face legal challenges. And local LGBTQ plus rights advocates in North Carolina vow to take that ban to court. Now, to give you some idea of those challenges in the courts and and how they are playing out around the country and why this sort of thing is just so unspeakably cruel. Our own legal contributor at Bradblog.com, Ernest A. Canning, wrote about one of the uh, just one of the challenges to Florida's similar law similarly cruel, which blocks children from medical care prescribed by doctors and approved by their own parents. Reporting on a federal court ruling back in June this year in Florida, which blocked that state's, the court ruling blocked that state's new law, finding it was likely to cause irreparable harm to the children plaintiff in this particular lawsuit. U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle temporarily enjoined provisions of Florida's Republican-engineered state statute and rules issued by state medical boards to enforce it, which make it a crime and grounds for terminating a license to practice medicine for physicians who furnish minors under 18 with gender-affirming care, writes Ernie. Judge Hinkle found that, quote, adolescent children plaintiffs will suffer irreparable harm if Florida's law was allowed to be enacted, specifically the unwanted and irreversible progression of puberty in their natal sex if they do not promptly begin treatment, unquote. That according to the judge. Treatment with so-called puberty blockers or hormone agonists found to be safe and recommended by the nation's top medical associations, as the judge explained in his ruling. The treatment... He notes with these uh, uh, prescribed medicines, according to the court, quote, will affect the patients themselves and nobody else. Gender affirming care does not harm either society or the defendants in this case, the court found. But it was the judge's description of the lead plaintiff in this case, Susan Doe. An 11-year-old transgender girl, uh, it was the description of Susan Doe that caught my eye and frankly has stuck with me ever since we published this article at Bradblog. Uh, quote, from a young age, the decision recites, Susan consistently told her mother she was a girl. She experienced extreme anxiety and distress about wearing boys' clothing. Wearing girls' clothes made her, quote, happy, glowing, and sincere, as court testimony in the case revealed. So Susan, it turns out, is not only known as a girl by her school peers. Remember, she's 11. Uh, but is also described as a female in her government-issued ID. As Judge Hinkle notes in the ruling, all of her medical providers determined uh, hormone agonists will be medically necessary when she begins puberty. But the statute and rules in Florida would force her to go through male puberty. And, as the judge writes, this will out her as a transgender to her peers and will have devastating physical, emotional, and psychological effects. Can you imagine what will happen for this little girl among her classmates who have always known her 
to be a girl when, you know, she starts sprouting whiskers during puberty very soon. So that was uh, from the case in Florida in June. That's why the judge put a halt on that case for the moment. And that is what Republicans in the gerrymandered North Carolina state legislature are now forcing on state residents immediately after overriding the Democratic governor's veto. I do not, you know, well, I do understand that many people are confused by uh, transgenderism. I get that. So I'll uh, just say, you know what, thankfully, you don't have to deal with this issue, but You should understand what is now being forced upon your fellow citizens by these laws being enacted by big government Republican autocrats across the nation right now. These cruel laws that will only affect the people that they affect. They won't affect the lawmakers. They won't affect anybody else. They're just hurtful to the people who need uh, this medical care. Democratic Senator Lisa Grafstein, North Carolina's only out LGBTQ plus state senator, said the gender affirming care bill, quote, may be uh, the most heartbreaking bill in a truly heartbreaking session. Republican Senator Joyce Krawitz, and I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her name, but I really don't care. She is the bill's primary sponsor. Joyce Krawitz will go with argued that the state has a responsibility to protect children from receiving potentially irreversible procedures before they're old enough to make their own informed medical decisions. Well, talk about the nanny state, but for the record, Joyce, puberty blockers are not irreversible, but they are critical to little girls like that one in Florida. Gender-affirming care is considered safe and medically necessary by the American Academy of Pediatrics. Heard of them? How about the American Medical Association? Uh, Safe and medically necessary by those huge and other uh, medical organizations, if not, of course, by the elected Republicans with no medical experience whatsoever in North Carolina and in Florida and now in too many other states. While trans minors very rarely receive surgical interventions, they are commonly prescribed these drugs to delay puberty and sometimes begin taking hormones before reaching adulthood to allow them to match more physically closely with their gender identities. But of course, Senator Joyce Krawitz, or whatever her name is, she doesn't care. Democratic Rep. John Autry of Mecklenburg County, who has a transgender grandchild, choked up while debating the gender-affirming care bill on the House floor. Quote, just stop it, he begged his Republican colleagues before they voted. They didn't stop it. Governor Cooper blasted the Republican-controlled chambers for what he called wrong priorities. He said the legislature finally comes back to pass legislation. That discriminates, he said in a statement, warning of the repercussions for North Carolina families and students, parents of trans and non-binary children like Elizabeth Waugh of Orange County in North Carolina said before the voting that they have been weighing whether to move their families out of North Carolina so that their children will have unrestricted access to uh, gender affirming health care. 
Wah's child did not begin receiving treatment before the random date of August 1 and would now need to travel elsewhere if they want to start taking hormones. Wah said, quote, I have felt uh, I have felt like I had a lump in my throat for months just talking to other families who are dealing with this. I mean, the pain that they are feeling, the suffering, the fear for their children. It is devastating, she said. And remember, Republicans are also claiming to be the party of so-called parental rights. But I guess those parents... You know, they only have rights that Republicans feel like granting them at any given time that they think may help them to win elections or something. That, among other things, is what is happening right now in the closely divided state of North Carolina. And boy, howdy, do I hope that voters there will remember this next November. Then again... That's why they gerrymander districts. Though do stick with us, as I, I hope to have some good news, actually, about gerrymandering as well today, elsewhere. Uh, but it's also why Republicans are working so hard to prevent Democratic-leaning voters from being able to vote at all, as we see yet again down in the great state of Texas. Yeah, it's, uh, well, we got sort of an auto autocrats on parade, I guess, today in this first block, Des. Sorry. Uh, actually, all year long we've had that, now that I think about it. Anyway, uh, the Texas Attorney General's office this week appealed the decision of a judge to temporarily block a new law that was passed by Republicans to abolish Harris County, Texas's elections chief position. Don't like how the county votes? Well, just do away entirely with the person who runs their elections, I guess. The decision on Tuesday by a state district judge to block that law, the state district judge ruled that the GOP law is unconstitutional under Texas state uh, state's constitution and would also disrupt this fall's elections, which is just a few weeks away at this point. This fall, Republican lawmakers in Texas just voted to do away with the person running elections in Harris County. That is Houston. That is the state's largest and, yes, most Democratic-leaning city. And they have voted to do away with the person running the elections in that county just months before this year's elections there. To hell with small local government, Republicans prefer big government instead, sending in these laws from Austin, uh, at least when it comes to sending them to Democratic-leaning counties. Within hours of the judge's decision barring that law, the Texas Attorney General's office filed its appeal in the Texas Supreme Court. District Judge Karen Crump's order is now blocked from taking effect. The law which would have forced the county to eliminate the county's elections administrator and transfer all election duties to the county clerk and tax assessor collector. Because, of course, the tax assessor collector, that's who you want running your election. Sure, they'll know how to administer an election for millions and millions and millions of people Ex that they've never done before. Except that they don't because they right. have zero experience running elections. That law is now set to take effect on September 1, just weeks 
before early voting begins for the county's November municipal elections. Harris County Attorney Christian Menefee filed the lawsuit in Travis County District Court last month and argued that the law, uh, Senate Bill 1750, violates the Texas Constitution because it was used by the legislature to single out just one county, which is unconstitutional, according to uh, the attorney. Uh, Reading the bill... I I love how the, the, the text describes it as, quote, an act relating to abolishing the county elections administrator position in certain counties. Which counties? Well, uh, all counties, quote, with a population of more than three point five million. <laughs> and how many counties like that are there in Texas? Of course, there is one Harris County, Houston. The popula- for the record, the population of the next largest county, Dallas County, it's about two and a half million. After that, Bear County, home of San Antonio, is just uh, just over two million. So you see what they did there? All counties with a population of more than three point five million. They might as well have passed a, a law applying to whatever county has the most black people in it. Exactly. Because that's what they're doing here. Judge Crump agreed with the Harris County attorney and in her ruling added, quote, not only will this transfer lead to inefficiencies, disorganization, confusion and office instability and increased costs to Harris County, but it will also disrupt an election that the Harris County election administrator has been planning for months. I think that's the idea. Exactly. Republicans responded, OK, what's what's <laughs> what's wrong with that exactly? Yeah. The judge pointed out that the Harris County clerk and the Harris County tax assessor collector, who would suddenly be in charge of November's elections, quote, have had no role in preparing for it. Without court intervention, the public's selection of their elected representatives, the core process on which our democracy rests, rests will be risked in Harris County, the filing says. And again, Republicans replied, OK, right. So what's the problem? Texas Republicans who dominate the state legislature spent this year's legislative session pushing for unprecedented state authority over elections in Harris County, the state's most populous and a Democratic stronghold. In a news release, the Texas Attorney General's office said it maintains that despite what the actual text of the state constitution says, quote, the legislature had a reasonable basis for the law. Harris County is the most populous county in Texas and as such has an outsized statewide impact on elections. So because it is so large, they claim, we must do something to uh, take over control of their elections from them or something. That's the justification. And uh, it didn't go over in court, but that's okay. The... uh, Uh, Texas Attorney General's office was just able to file an appeal with the state Supreme Court, and that means the law is, for now, back on. By the way, who is the Texas Attorney General? I don't know. Uh, The last guy, (laughs) Ken Paxton, uh, facing a whole bunch of crimes, uh, was recently impeached. And while he's uh, waiting his trial for his impeachment, uh, he's not allowed to serve. That's the uh, top state election, uh, the top top state law enforcement official in Texas. The much indicted top state law enforcement indicted official. and impeached. So we'll see. In any event, now uh, you know I need to point out Houston has had a number of problems with some of their elections. Harris County, 
as we see in any large county. In this case, for example, in 2022, Harris County had to extend voting for an hour after various polling places experienced problems with voting machines and paper uh, ballot paper shortages and had long wait times because of this. The Houston Chronicle subsequently reported that out of the more than 782 polling locations in Harris, only about 20 actually ran out of paper. But that's enough for big government Republicans over in Austin to overturn the entire election system just weeks before the next election there. Sure, that'll work. Soon after the uh, 2022 election, 21 losing Republican candidates filed lawsuits against the county, citing those problems and seeking a redo of the election. Now, many of those cases are still pending. In one of them, a former judge and a Republican candidate for a district court who lost her race to a Democrat by about 0.26 percent margin. That's around 2000 votes in, in that case has argued that the irregularities during last November's election, like the paper ballot shortages, the ballot paper shortages, and malfunctioning equipment, raise questions about the reliability of the results and warrant a new election. Okay, perhaps they do. But the Democrats' attorney points out that while the Republican former judge said thousands of people were prevented from voting because of all of this, That former Republican judge failed to bring even one single voter to testify that they were, in fact, prevented from voting because of these problems. So don't know if it's a whole bunch of election deniers in Harris County or what, but they are now trying to game the system to... If you can't win by the voters, you know, just change the laws. Make it so that they can't vote. And they can't vote you out either. Disrupt their elections any way that you can. And you know what? Hope for the best. Because they know they're going to lose in November this year. So, you know, maybe we'll have a chance if we inject havoc and chaos into their elections by putting uh, people in charge who know nothing about elections, who had nothing to do with the planning just weeks before the election. That's what they're doing in Texas to hang on to power in that state, in a state that is already gerrymandered as much as possible by the Republicans who run it, and which has, by the way, one of the lowest, if not the lowest, turnout rates in the country, which, of course, is why Republicans still run it. Let's take a quick break here, and we'll come back with some better news about both elections and gerrymandering and, yes, the courts. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. Some actual bona fide, I think, good news. Straight ahead on the broadcast, I'm Brad Friedman. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's Brad Cast, Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Thank you for sticking with us. Elections have consequences. 
That uh, is how our uh, Bradblog legal contributor, Ernie Canning, again this week at uh, bradblog.com, starts a, a, an article about an issue that has not gotten the uh, attention that it deserves because it's really encouraging news, and I think we could all use a bit of encouraging news these days. So elections have consequences, writes Ernie Canning. Recently, in a separate article, he described how the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court's corrupt right-wing radicals in robes, as he describes them last year, to overturn the constitutional right to abortion led directly to the election of pro-choice Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Janet Protasiewicz earlier this year. By, quote, 11 percentage points, a huge margin in a narrowly divided state, said the New York Times at the time. So on August 1, this month, the new justice was finally seated on Wisconsin's high court, thereby flipping majority control from a four to three right wing court to a four to three liberal majority for the first time in more than 15 years in the Badger State. That was August 1. The very next day, on August 2, state voters filed a petition directly with the Wisconsin Supreme Court. It's uh, The case is Clark v. Wisconsin Elections Commission. And in the case, petitioners seek to break the chains of the GOP's 12-year entrenched control in both houses in Wisconsin, in the Wisconsin legislature. Control that was and is the product of what petitioners in this case allege to be unlawful, extreme, extreme partisan gerrymandering, writes Ernie. Two days after that, a second petition, right v. Wisconsin Elections Commission, was also filed with the Wisconsin Supreme Court by a group of mathematicians and computer scientists. In addition to presenting essentially the same legal challenge that the Wright petition does, the uh, I'm sorry, that the Clark petition does, the Wright petition bolsters both of those cases, Ernie argues, with objective scientific evidence establishing that the 2011 and 2021 Wisconsin legislative maps are the product of unlawful gerrymandering. Both petitions and the dissent identify multiple provisions within the Wisconsin Constitution that they claim were violated by this extreme partisan gerrymandering. The Clark petition uh, not only seeks to replace the state's partisan gerrymandered legislative map, with a fair map in time for next year's legislative elections, but it also seeks an emergency writ that would schedule a 2024 special election for all Badger state senators, including those whose terms would otherwise not expire until 2027. So they would otherwise not be up for election in the Senate, part of the Senate, until the 2026 election. But uh, these petitioners are saying, no, let's hold the election now instead, uh, based on the argument that all state senators, quote, lack legal entitlement to their office because their respective respective offices are the product of unconstitutionally configured districts. These lawsuits could, in fact, be huge for Wisconsin and most importantly for Wisconsin voters. 
Fair maps. Can you imagine such a thing? Well, there's a lot of people in Wisconsin who can't imagine, who aren't young enough, or, I'm sorry, who aren't old enough to, to, remember. to remember when they had fair maps in Wisconsin. But not only would, would this, if these uh, suits are successful, change the, uh, the maps to fair ones, but actually change the entire uh, House and Senate next year. Mid-session, kind of, right? Uh, well, these otherwise uh, these senators would otherwise not be up for election until 2026. So, yeah. Wow. Put them up for election. Let's flip all of these things to uh, a, a fair. That's what I would call a fresh start. That's pretty cool, right? In 2010, just big. to give you an idea, back in 2010, uh, Ernie notes, Wisconsin Democrats had trifecta control over the entire state government. They had a Democratic governor. They had an 18 to 15 majority in the Wisconsin Senate and a 50, 52 to 46 majority in the Assembly. That uh, that trifecta control was narrowly flipped as a result of a low turnout 2010 midterm election in which Democrats also lost their majority in the uh, U.S. House as well, because, yes, elections have consequences. But because this was 2010, that would be a, a year that they redraw maps every 10 years after the uh, by uh, what is it by any by. <laughs> Every 10 years, they have the census uh, and they redraw the map. So that's what happened in 2010 when Democrats were not paying much attention. Barack Obama was in the White House, had replaced George W. Bush. Democrats and uh, liberals and progressives kind of walked away and said, well, we're safe now. George W. Bush is gone. We don't have to turn out to vote here in 2010. And that's what happened. Republicans took over uh, state houses all across the country, and that's when they instituted uh, these extreme gerrymanders. On top of extreme voter suppression laws that they continue yep. to ratchet up to make it even harder for people to vote them out. As the mathematicians and computer scientists explain in their petition, in the right petition, in 2011, the Republican trifecta produced a, quote, radical reshape of the Badger State's legislative map. Quote, Republicans produced a 2011 plan that shifted 2.3 million Wisconsin residents, more than 40 percent of the state's population, into new assembly districts to entrench a Republican majority in the legislature over at least the next decade, according to the suit. It was all part, of course, of that plan from uh, 2010, a very successful plan by Republicans called Project Red Map. At the time, it was headed up successfully by a uh, longtime GOP political operative, Carl Rove. It's detailed in the uh, book by uh, frequent broadcast guest David Daly, his 2016 book that has a title we can't say on air, so we just call it Rat Flipped. The true story behind the secret plan to steal America's democracy, which they successfully did. And now in Wisconsin, the petition in Clark describes the manner in which extreme partisan gerrymandering via the 2011 and 2021 maps in Wisconsin served to ensure entrenchment. Quote from the petition since 2012, even when Democrats have won as much as 53 percent of the vote. They have held no more than 39 of the 99 assembly seats in the same period when Republicans have won as little as 44.8 percent of the statewide vote. They have held no fewer 
than 66 of the 99 seats, and they saw victories that yielded them 22 of uh, of 33 Senate seats. In the November 22 election, Republicans won 64 of 99 Assembly seats and saw victories that yielded them 22 of the 33 Senate seats. At the same time, Democratic candidates nonetheless won three of five statewide elections. So when you have an election of everyone in the state, they go for the Democrats. But when you game the system with gerrymanders like this, the seats go to the other side and they stay there because those are the folks who write the rules. So there's uh, some good news here. Obviously, the, the Wisconsin Supreme Court now has a liberal majority for the first time in all of those years. Will they therefore agree with the petitioners that the uh, state's legislative maps need to be redrawn immediately in time for next year's general election? Well, the odds seem encouraging at this point. And and will they order all state senators to run in a special election next year? We don't know. So, you know, voters don't have to wait until 2027 to have a fairly elected state Senate that actually represents the people of Wisconsin. We don't know. So we will see this. But I, it's obviously uh, it's very good. It would be delightful to remove those people who are serving basically under unlawful pretenses. Why should we allow them to stay in office for another two years after this? Well, we shall see. But it is very good news. And yes, as Desi also likes to point out, elections have consequences. <laughs> All right. Let me uh, I've got some uh, listener mail. A couple other stories I wanted to get to. Not going to have time because we got to do Desi's Green News <laughs> Report. But some listener mail, our friend and uh, regular listener, DR, uh, writes in via Mastodon, where you will find me at the Brad blog on the Jorna.host server. Uh, he writes in to say, in response to our special coverage with guests Heather Digby Parton of Salon and Hullabaloo, and uh, Keith Barber of Daily Coast on yesterday's broadcast regarding Donald Trump's newest indictment down in Georgia uh, with racketeering charges and specifically on my spidey sense, as discussed at the end of that show. It's only a sense, again, not a prediction, but a sense that tells me Donald Trump may not actually be on the GOP general election ballot after all by the time we get to November of next year. Anyway, writes DR, excellent coverage. I cracked up at the Billy Joel sound clip, which, by the way, we got to give credit to to uh, another regular listener. Yes. KCP for that one. He has an email I'm going to get to in a second. Anyway, he says, I agree with Parton and Barber that Trump will still likely end up with the GOP nomination. And I agree as well. I I, I think uh, he is currently the most likely to end up with that nomination, but I'm not quite as certain as everyone else seems to be that he actually will. That he'll make it all the way to there. That he'll actually end up being on the ballot next year in November. I asked Mm. uh, Heather and Keith if they thought uh, Republican primary voters would finally figure out that, you know, nominating a guy with... 91 felony counts that he is currently facing. If if Republicans may figure out, you know, that's maybe that's not a great idea, maybe not a great general election strategy. Or I asked if Trump himself would, uh, you know, facing a growing likelihood of spending the rest of his life in prison. 
might suddenly get desperate and try to make a plea deal in exchange for being spared prison time, like I won't run. Anyway, they both, just like DR, apparently uh, poo-pooed both ideas, uh, and yet I cannot shake my spidey sense. And one of the points I didn't get to mention is that, you know, there's another substantive argument that I didn't have time for then and really don't now. So I'll (laughs) quickly describe Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which bars anyone who has taken the oath of office from being able to serve or be, you know, even qualified to run if they have participated in an insurrection against that same government that they served. That's the very definition of Donald Trump at this point. You've heard us discuss the matter a number of times on this show with folks like constitutional law expert John Bonifaz of Free Speech for People. That group is notifying secretaries of state in all 50 states that they should disqualify Trump from the next year's ballot under the uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, the Insurrection Disqualification Clause. So that could could kick in. There has been a story that I've been trying to get to on that. I'm going to have to also hold, unfortunately, for another day. But even conservative uh, law professors, actual conservative law, right wing, at least, law professors with the Federalist Society are saying, yep, uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does bar Donald Trump. So that's another reason why he might not end up on the uh, on the ballot next year. As far as whether he should or not, I know Democrats and progressives, many of them would love to see Donald Trump on the ballot. I've long argued he'd be the most likely the easiest uh, uh, candidate to defeat next year. Casey writes in to say, listening to today's show right now, I really hope. Trump does get the nomination. The GOP will try to cheat regardless of who the candidate is. Trump will drag the whole party down. The one chance for progressives to really get their agenda through Congress. He continues, Trump is carrying so much baggage that he'll keep a lot of Republicans home and have a lot of independents voting for Biden, even if they don't really want him. They're going to cheat no matter who they run. So I'm hoping they'll wind up with a candidate that no matter how much they cheat, can't win. That seems to be Trump. And Casey, that seems to be exactly what a whole bunch of people also said back in 2016 (laughs) before Donald Trump did win. So don't get too excited about whether he can win or not. Casey, thanks, guys. You continue to be great. Thank you very much, Casey. You continue to be great. And you can con- continue to uh, hit me with your emails. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And maybe we'll get to more of them next week as time and lack of indictments allows. All right, quick break. And we're back with Desi Doyne and the Green News Report right here on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Yeah, once again, 
hurricane warning for Southern California coming your way <laughs> soon or or not. We will see. Uh, that story came in a little bit too late for our latest Green News report. The numbers will increase, but they will not increase, we hope, uh, uh, to catastrophic, further catastrophic proportions, we just don't know yet. Extent of heartbreaking losses becoming clearer in Maui fires. New evacuations as Canada's record wildfire season rages on. Plus, instead of exporting American jobs, we're creating American jobs, exporting American products. One year later, the Inflation Reduction Act is turbocharging a U.S. clean energy boom. All of those booms and more straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. This legislation they oppose or attack is now the greatest thing to come to their states. You have Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, the very quiet lady from Georgia. Well, she talked about what Biden's doing is what Roosevelt did, what Kennedy did. I thought, well, yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, more grim news out of Hawaii today, but at least the bad news is slowing down a bit. Uh, That's a good way of looking at it. As we go to air on Maui, Hawaii, the death toll has surpassed 110 and is still rising. Downed power lines are under new scrutiny as a potential ignition source. Amid massive mobilization of resources for search, recovery and relief efforts, FEMA estimates it will take many years to rebuild the destroyed town of Lahaina at a cost upwards of five and a half billion dollars. Preliminary insurance industry estimates put total economic loss and damage from the fires as high as $10 billion. The Maui fires destroyed nearly 3,000 structures, the vast majority residential, worsening the pre-existing affordable housing crisis on the island. Survivors say they are already being approached by developers wanting to buy land where their homes once stood. You know, many, of course, think of Hawaii as a paradise, but the fact is, over the past 20 or so years, according to AP, Disasters like this, thanks in no small part to climate change, have sort of gone through the roof on Hawaii. Canada is also still grappling with a record wildfire season intensified by extreme heat and dryness. The government of the Northwest Territories declared a state of emergency this week due to multiple out-of-control wildfires that completely obliterated the rural town of Enterprise and now threaten the territorial capital of Yellowknife. There's no relief from the unprecedented heat that is intensifying the fires in Canada. Parts of British Columbia broke new all-time high records this week for the month of August, topping 106 degrees. Portland, Oregon this week also set a new all-time high August temperature record of 108 degrees. That's about 25 degrees hotter than normal. The last time Portland, Oregon was this hot was during a 1 in 10,000 year heat wave that hit two years ago. As the pace of costly climate change intensified extreme weather disasters accelerates, climate solutions are also gaining speed. Good. One year ago this week, President Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, the largest single climate investment in U.S. history after a long and very difficult struggle. Experts say the Inflation Reduction Act has already been a game changer for the clean energy sector in America, but experts say it has also spurred other countries to boost their climate investments to 
compete. So not only a game changer here in the U.S., but a game changer around the world. Yes. However, a recent poll found most Americans are unaware of the law's profound impact. Seventy percent say that they've heard little or nothing at all about the Inflation Reduction Act since it was signed into law. The IRA invests $370 billion over 10 years to accelerate renewable energy projects, increase domestic clean energy manufacturing and electric vehicle manufacturing, and boost electrification, including the first major incentives for homeowners to transition away from polluting fossil fuels. According to new analyses, the climate law has spurred a factory-building frenzy in the U.S. More than $110 billion in new private sector clean energy manufacturing plants including the nation's first solar panel recycling plant. Nearly 200,000 new jobs in the clean energy sector alone. That has spurred others like the European Union and India to boost investment in their own domestic clean tech industries. President Biden, in a tour of a wind energy plant in Milwaukee, Wisconsin this week, noted that all congressional Republicans voted against the Inflation Reduction Act as he highlighted the surge in clean energy jobs and U.S. manufacturing. Investing in America. According to Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, my plan is leading to a boom. They call it a boom in manufacturing and manufacturing investment, as you're seeing right here in this factory. A building boom, a manufacturing boom, a jobs boom, a clean energy boom. Sounds like a good idea to me. For much more on all of these booms and the ones we couldn't get to today, Check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Find, follow, and share us planet-wide on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Spirit. Thanks very much, Desi Doyle, yeah. our producer. Thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at brandblog.com, along with any other show we have ever done in our lives. All made possible by those of you kind enough, thank you, uh, for stopping by brandblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We've got to get out. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks, Mastodons, and site formerly known as Twitter. I am the Brad Blog. We'll see you there. Till we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. With the boom. Boom, boom, boom. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1985. That was the day that workers at the Hormel plant in Austin, Minnesota, went out on strike. They were members of the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, Local P9. Hormel had slashed workers' wages by 23% during the early 1980s. Benefits were also diminished, and incentive programs rolled back. These changes cut deeply into the Hormel workers' earnings. What had been considered a good job was changing drastically. This was the story for many workers in Reagan-era America. The 3,500 Hormel workers voted overwhelmingly to strike. The national UFCW discouraged the action. The strike lasted more than a year. Strike breakers were brought in, including some of the union members who crossed the picket line to return to work. The National Guard was called in to keep the peace between strikers and the scabs. 
After a year, the strike went down in defeat. Even after the strike, many of the workers were not called back to work. They were put on waiting lists for a job to reopen. Some never returned to the plant. 25 years after the strike, the Austin Daily Herald staff wrote, quote, What resulted was a bitter, drawn-out labor dispute that drastically impacted the community, from workers who lost their jobs to families that were torn apart by the picket lines. The strike became the feature of a documentary by Barbara Koppel. In 1990, the documentary American Dream won the Academy Award. The film tells the story of the Hormel strike as a window into the tragic experiences of many workers during the 1980s. The film was made on a shoestring budget. Singer Bruce Springsteen provided $25,000 to help support this important film. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. 